Tonight's lesson is going to be somewhat different from most of the ones that we've studied in this uh, study of Mark. Uh, for one thing, there are fewer verses to consider. Uh, fewer is a relative term, 37, but that's better than 72. And so uh, we have fewer verses, but, but basically this chapter also has fewer parts to it. Uh, in, in fact, it basically concerns, I guess you would say, two subjects, one of which comes from the other and is interwoven with the other. And so our focus will be a little sharper in just one direction tonight, and uh, hopefully it will be something that uh, we can all get uh, in our understanding. And speaking of understanding, an understanding of Jewish history will benefit people who study Mark 13. Um, one writer put it this way in regard to this chapter. From the beginning to the end, Jesus is concerned with Jewish thinking and Jewish history. And that's true. Um, we're going to try to mention some uh, additional details that might hopefully uh, add a little bit to our appreciation of what we see here. Chapter 12 ends with Jesus in the temple area. And you notice that I try to continually say area because when, when you say Jesus was in the temple, sometimes people think that you're talking about being inside of the temple. Jesus was not inside the temple. But the temple area was a wider area. Jesus was not a priest. He couldn't go into the temple. Uh, was not a high priest. Couldn't go into the Holy of Holies as far as the Jews were concerned. But uh, Jesus is leaving the temple area and he has commended a widow who has given generously, although her giving was small monetarily. In fact, Jesus compared her generosity to those who cast in from their, what we might call superfluity, from their abundance. She had given more than all. So as chapter 13 begins, Jesus is leaving the temple area, and we will go to the first part of this chapter, which deals with the temple itself. And that's in verses 1 and 2. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Incidentally, the parallels that I've been giving you in the other accounts here are Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And this is one of those occasions where you really do need to read all three accounts, particularly Matthew's account in connection with Mark's account. I'll tell you why as we go along. Mark simply notes that one of the disciples, and likely speaking for the others, because as you look at Matthew and Luke's account, 
it is not just one disciple who's gushing about the temple. There are others, and he evidently may be the spokesman. You can imagine Peter, perhaps, as being the one who would call attention to the grandeur of the temple complex. And incidentally, again, not just the temple per se, but the complex. There are some things that, because we don't think a lot about the Old Testament, or at least some don't think a lot about it, we need to remember some history about the temple. David wanted to build a house for God, a temple for God. The prophet Nathan encouraged him to go ahead and do that. God told Nathan, no, you go back to David and tell him, not you. You are a man of blood. David had been a warrior. And God said, I don't want you building the temple. I I will let your son build it. And Solomon did. He built the temple, of course, as a very grand structure. And and we don't have time to go through that, but 1 Kings 6 and 7 just show you how grand it was. Over a period of years after Solomon, God's people sinned repeatedly, and because of that, the temple was plundered, it was desecrated, it was even renovated because of the poor care that had been taken of it. Finally, when you get down to 586 B.C., the temple is destroyed by the Babylonian armies. Nebuchadnezzar had been to Jerusalem for the third time, 606, 596, and 586, and now he's not going to put up with it anymore, and and Jewish temple is crushed. Um, God's people were sentenced by God to 70 years of captivity. That captivity began in 606 with the first deportation of Jews and ended in 536. Those who came back to Jerusalem among the remnant of the Jews started rebuilding the temple. They had some struggle in doing that. There was a 20-year lapse that their work uh, lingered and failed. And then they finally rebuilt the temple, but not as beautiful as Solomon's temple. In fact, do you remember the reaction of some of the people when they saw the second temple? They cried. They cried because it was not, and these must have been old people who perhaps had lived long enough to either have seen the temple or have been told by their parents about the grandeur of the temple. This was not that grand. Okay, I'm going to skip some history. There is some some history that's outside of the Bible, uh, but, but it's certain. In 168, the temple was desecrated again by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek ruler, who brought a sow into the temple to be sacrificed so that it could be a contemptible thing to the Jews. Bring a pig in, which of course was unclean to Jews. Um, 20 or 19 B.C., Herod the Great, uh, who was not a really good person at all, certainly not a 
full-fledged Jew, and certainly not a lover of Jews, but for his own perhaps personal pleasure and to make the Jews think he loved them, he started a massive building project. And that's when the temple began to be more than the temple. It began to be a complex. There was a a court of the Gentiles, a court of the women, and, and so there were a lot of surrounding things. That was a very long process. In fact, Herod died, and the work continued after his death. And in fact, it continued after Jesus was crucified and went back to heaven. It was completed only a few years before it was destroyed again in 70 AD. And I'll talk to you a little bit more about that later. But but at this particular time, during the time of Jesus, the temple at least artificially looked to be a grand structure. The the historian Josephus, a Jew uh, actually employed by the Romans and a very Roman bias in his reporting of the history of the Jews. But Josephus pictured the temple as being uh, composed of large, massive blocks of marble, white marble. There were also evidently magnificent gold plates on some of the areas of the temple. And this was so grand that from a distance, when someone looked at it and the sun hit it just right, it was brilliant. The reflection was brilliant. And, and, and someone had written, if, this was a later historian, if you never saw Herod's temple, you never really saw a temple. In other words, it was the grandest thing imaginable at that particular time. Well, verse 2 shows you Jesus did not share their enthusiasm. In fact, what he says to them is, do you not see or do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Um, Jesus is likely using hyperbole, which is an intended exaggeration. I know I've told you that a million times, right? I hope you get that. Um, in, In order to show the absolute devastation of Jerusalem and the temple, in fact, Josephus again says that it was so utterly destroyed that someone passing by might not even think there had been a temple there. That would be fulfilled, of course, as I mentioned, in 70 A.D. by the Roman general Titus. Titus was the son of the Roman ruler Vespasian, and Titus would later become ruler himself. But he was in charge of the destruction, and they really hammered the Jews. Uh, The the Jews had been causing trouble. There had been a number of insurrections and and tumults. And the Romans, much like the Babylonians centuries earlier, just got fed up with it. And uh, it is believed, 
and, and I'll go back to this a little bit later, but more than one million Jews died in that city during the siege. There's an irony about that that I'll mention to you also. Well, Jesus from this point is going to need to explain this to the disciples. Verse 3 says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives. Now notice this. Mark is very picturesque sometimes. Opposite the temple. They, they have ascended evidently somewhat on the Mount of Olives to a vantage point, And they're facing the temple. They're looking at this beautiful structure from a distance. And four of the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. We wonder why it's not Peter, Andrew, James, and John. That's the way we learned it, right? Ask him privately. They, they get Jesus apart or wait till he's by himself. They come to him and they ask this. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Um, th this is one of those places that when Jesus said that to them, and it sunk in, not one stone is going to be left here. This is one of those places where we really wish we could have just captured the shock that these disciples must have felt in their minds. What in the world is he saying? Not one stone is going to be left on another. And so they ask these questions. But it's also important, and, and I want you to turn back to Matthew 24 for just a moment. Because Matthew does something that Mark and Luke do not do. And I'll explain that in a moment. Matthew 24 and verse 3. As Matthew records this, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming, but notice, and of the end of the age? The, 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 the two questions that Mark focuses on here in, in this account that he gives is, when is this going to happen? And what's going to be the sign that it's going to happen? Likely, they... Mark is not clueless about what was asked, but it is to be understood, I think, that in the disciples' mind, Mark didn't think you had to answer, ask the third question. Because these Jews, because of their feeling about Judaism and the temple, likely thought if this happens, it will be the end of the world. They believed the temple would last forever and that Judaism would last forever. And they could not imagine separating the destruction of the temple from the end of the world. And so I think they're, they're asking this. Um, surely it would be the end of all things. Well, Jesus answered very carefully. And, and many have misunderstood what he said it is very, very important to recognize that he answered more than two questions. He answered three questions. When will this be? 
When will the sign of this fulfillment and what will happen when the world ends? Okay, the end of the age. First, he starts off talking about the destruction of the temple. And then he will turn his attention to what that prefigured. And this is what I mentioned at the beginning about two subjects intertwined. The destruction of the Jerusalem will actually be a prefigurement of what's going to happen at the end of the world. Just like Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, so will the world be destroyed. The end of the age. Um, first, the destruction. And he spoke of some general things, signs, that they could focus on. Here they are. Take no heed, verse 5 says, that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. You see, troublesome times would be perfect for deceivers to come and make claims that would lead people astray. In fact, if you remember in Acts the fifth chapter, Gamaliel, a Jew, refers to two false messiahs who had already done that. They had already claimed to be the Messiah and had led people away. That would happen evidently again after the time of Jesus. And then Jesus said there would be wars and famines and earthquakes, verse 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But notice, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrow, not the end of it. The beginnings of it. There are two severe famines mentioned in the book of Acts. And that's one of the reasons, remember, Paul was taking up a collection to take it to the saints in Jerusalem because there had been a Judean famine. And history, of course, tells us, and you read, you forgot, but you read it, about the destruction of Pompeii, a, a, a cataclysmic volcanic eruption at Mount Vesuvius, 63 A.D., 63 A.D., and so caught them by surprise that people can still visit there today and find relics of things that were trapped in that uh, landslide of, of uh, lava. In verses 9 through 13, he says, but watch out for yourselves. This gets personal now. There are going to be wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, but watch out because they will deliver you up, you, the apostles, up, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. Remember Paul standing before Felix Festus Agrippa? And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Um, Colossians 1. Look at Colossians 1. And verse 23, Paul is encouraging the Colossian Christians. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, notice, 
which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Again, there's another hyperbole. You see, if you're from Texas, you probably would say, you mean everlast person? And that's not what he's saying. He's saying by hyperbole, it has gone into all the nation. It has been proclaimed. And, and Jesus said that that needed to be done. Incidentally, Colossians would have been written in about 61 or 62 A.D. So that is before the destruction of Jerusalem. Now in verse 14, Jesus would provide a specific sign. Here it is. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, then he says, let the reader understand. Those are Mark's words, I think. Hey, think about this. What is Jesus saying here? That specific sign, of course, uh, would refer to Daniel's prophecy. And, and if you'll look at Luke 21, this Luke 21 makes it clearer. That's why you need to look at all these together. Luke 21 and verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. The sign would be when Jerusalem is encompassed by armies, that will be the lead up to the abomination of desolation. Incidentally, the Romans would also desecrate the temple. Uh, now, here is the irony of what happens next in verse 14. Jesus says, let those then, when you see that happening, and you can see it, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Friends, they did just the opposite. People flooded into the city and that's why Josephus says 1.1 million people died in Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't that big. But all the Jews, instead of escaping and going away, decided, let's get into the city. And what that caused was massive problems. People started getting sick. Uh, Josephus records some really gruesome things about uh, men who became so hungry that they were eating shoe leather, that people were getting into gutters trying to eat dead animals, and I don't mean just recently killed, but rotting animals. A woman, like, much like the Old Testament story, killed her own child and broiled it, and then offered it as food to those who came knocking on her door looking for food. It was gruesome. And Josephus said that the Romans had no pity when they came in because they were so incensed at the Jews that they slaughtered men, women, and children. I didn't care who they were. They were Jews. And they slaughtered them. Josephus also says that about 97,000 Jews were taken captive. Then in 21 through and through 23, 
Uh, incidentally, uh, let me go back a little bit because this course of action that Jesus talks about, fleeing to the mountains, makes us certain that He's talking about a local event. You see, if He were talking about the end of the world, fleeing to the mountains won't do you any good. <laughs> if the world ends, fleeing to the mountains is not going to help. In verses 15 through 18, he even gets more specific. Let him who's on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of the house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies on the, in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter. Be exceptionally hard to travel in the winter, and especially with babies. And then. In verse 19, it would be a great tribulation. For in those days there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the creation which God created. Incidentally, there's just a little ironic statement, which God created. Creation which God created. That uh, Mark was not an evolutionist. Until this time, nor shall it be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. Notice. But for the elect's sake, whom He chose, He shortened the day. I don't know if, if you can depend on it. A later historian by the name of Eusebius claimed that not one Christian died in that massacre. I don't know if that's true or not. But... but he does say, but for the elect's sake, not the Jews' sake, but for the elect's sake, God shortened the day. We don't know what exactly that means, except that we do know from history that for some reason the Romans stopped the siege before it was actually fully completed. The temple was destroyed, but, but they could have done much more. And then they took off and left. And uh, figuring, I guess, that they had done more. But I think that's also uh, providential. Then verse 21, there's another warning. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or look, he, there He is. Don't believe it. Again, a, a ripe time for somebody to say, well, this is surely the time Jesus is coming back. It says in verse 22, For false Christ, false prophets, will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Sometimes people are troubled by the fact that evidently Satan has given power to individuals to do things that shouldn't be done or couldn't be done, wouldn't be done naturally. But those were intended to deceive. And then in verse 23, But take heed, see I have told you all things beforehand. Now, beginning in 24, Jesus starts using language that is unfamiliar to most Western thinkers today. It is called apocalyptic language. An apocalyptic language is highly symbolic language that is often intense, it, it's very vivid, it's dramatic, but it's not literal language, it is figurative language. Notice, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, 
the moon will not give its light, the stars in heaven will fall. Look, you know the stars didn't literally fall. Powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send His angels and gather together His elect from the four winds from the furthest part of the earth to the furthest part of heaven. Um, those who think that Jesus is referring to His second coming uh, in verse 26 don't really understand this correctly because, again, Jesus is talking about apocalyptic things. And, and this is very similar to Isaiah 13. We don't have the time to read that. But Isaiah writes about the destruction of Babylon using apocalyptic language. Ezekiel 32 uses apocalyptic language over the overthrow of Egypt. It is not literally stated it is apocalyptic. But now notice in verse 30, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. If Jesus was talking about His second coming, then He was wrong. Because it didn't take His second coming didn't take place before the destruction of Jerusalem. Then He adds this, heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will by no means pass away. Then it's very important to notice that Jesus moves to the third area, the end of the world. And He says this in 32, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. There are a number of contrasts between what comes before verse 32 and what follows verse 32. Note these things. <clears throat> Days, plural, D-A-Y-S. Verse 17, verse 19, verse 20 verse 24, and then you come to verse 32. But of that day, singular. Jesus offers no specific signs, only a lack of knowledge as to when it occurs. And incidentally, this is one of those places that helps us understand that Jesus arbitrarily chose to divest himself of some knowledge while he was on the earth. Because you see, if Jesus had retained the knowledge of when the end of the world is to occur, and, and he knew, God knows when the world's going to end. We don't. He does. Had he known that, it would have been very difficult to say, but don't worry, I mean, not to say, don't worry, not going to happen while you're alive. It's centuries away. What Jesus wanted those disciples to do, and I'll get to this, is the same thing He wants us to be prepared. You just be prepared. Be ready. And He, and he, and he talks about the suddenness through a story. 
beginning at verse 34. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house, gave authority to his servants, and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. Now notice this. Verse 33. Watch and pray. Verse 35. Watch therefore. And then finally in verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. I say to all, watch. From that moment forward, every person who listens to Jesus needs to understand the obligation to be ready, to be watchful. That's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to do. I I, I just, I wonder, I know myself, I don't know about you, I wonder how infrequently do I think this really could be the last day. This could be the end of the world. Am I ready? Am I living my life so that whatever moment Christ comes, I'm prepared? One of the things that is harmful to us is we become so settled in to our lives, don't we? We like it. You know, we we think that the early disciples often prayed, come Lord Jesus. We pray, wait a minute, don't come now. we got things to do. Still got plenty of things we want to get accomplished. And, and, And probably don't have the anticipation that they had, nor the preparedness. He wants all of us to be prepared for a second coming. And believe it or not, I've given you a little bit of time. If you want to make a comment or ask a question, I've got a couple of questions here, but if you want to say something or some thought has come into your mind, I don't mind you sharing it. Anybody? You're like me, you don't have any thoughts. You do. Why do you think the disciples wanted Jesus to observe the glory of the temple? Got any thought about that? Master, look. Just look at the temple. Why do you think? They were very physical, weren't they? They, they loved their nation. They loved their system. They didn't want the system to end. Uh, it, it, even after all that Jesus had taught them about the kingdom, the rule of God is coming, I'm not sure that they had ever sort of cleared out all of the idea that The rule of God doesn't mean Judaism. The rule of God means God's people who are obedient to Him 
no matter where they come from. The kingdom is to be expansive, not very negative and small. Okay. Watch. Need to watch. Okay. You're going to talk or not talk? Anybody? Yes, sir. Carrie? No, don't point to other people, Carrie. Oh, Danny? I had to get a help from the back. 